Turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. The passage this morning will be um, verses 1 through 7 here as Paul's introduction of Romans. <clears throat> Let's hear the word of God as it's written. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are you also the call of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making requests, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come to you, but was prevented until now that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray this way. Lord, we're going to be dealing with Paul's longest letters here, and certainly the most full treatise here he gives of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to hear it as people who have professed belief in the gospel because we always need to be reminded of the gospel. Because as Paul wrote the Colossians, it's the gospel that we receive that is indeed bearing fruit in us. It's continued to grow. It's to equip us to be missionary servants of you. And so, Lord, as we begin this journey through the book of Romans, I pray that we would be in conviction about sin. We would be renewed by your grace in the person of Christ. And that we would walk in grace as people of the Spirit. To understand the immensity of the fact that you have grafted us as Gentiles into the olive tree. Who now can save the Lord Jesus. We present ourselves a living sacrifice fully acceptable unto you. So that we can present ourselves as a reasonable worship and obedience to you. 
so that we learn how to relate to one another properly and engage the world in evangelism. In Jesus' name we pray. Author Daryl Johnson says that every worldview, every way of looking at the world and defining what it's about and purpose in life, is asking and trying to answer these following questions, and he lists nine of them. What is prime reality? In other words, what is the really real? What's truth? Who or what are we? In other words, what does it mean to be a human being? Is there such thing as morality, right or wrong? And what's the basis? How do you know what it is? What's the meaning of history? Or is there any meaning? What's wrong with us? Something's wrong. What is it? Is there a solution? Can things be fixed? By whom? How? How quickly? Is there a God? If so, can this God be known? And is this God involved in the world, especially in human suffering, etc.? What happens to a human being at death? At what time is it? Where are we in the flow of history? Romans answers these questions, doesn't it? Romans, this is, a, this is a powerful force in torrent here. There have been great people in church history who have been saved simply by reading verses from the book of Romans. Augustine, around 500, read Romans 13, convicted of a sin of fornication, where it says, Awake, sleeper, now is the time to rise. Came to Christ. Luther, around the 1500s, especially focusing on chapter 1 and verse 17 there. That the just shall live by faith, came to Christ from the Lord's righteousness, and thus began the Protestant Reformation. John Bunyan, in 1600, overwhelmed by the Book of Romans, actually was the basis for why he wrote Pilgrim's Progress in Bedford Jail. John Wesley, around 1700, read wrote, uh, Martin Luther's preface to Luther's commentary in the Book of Romans, and felt his heart strangely warmed. He describes that came to Christ. Karl Barth, who I wouldn't agree with everything, certainly has some significant problems, wrote a commentary on the Book of Romans, however, that devastated liberal Christianity, the claims of Jesus Christ. A typical letter in Roman day would average only 87 words, a couple paragraphs. Even more brief, brief than 3 John in your Bible, which is about 222 words. Or Philemon, about 338 words. Even the wise people of the day and the, and the, the very literate uh, letters to peers were of limited uh, length. Cicero's letters averaged about 300 words, and Seneca's letters about 1,000 words. And Romans is Paul's longest letter that we have, of course. He wrote lots of letters. The ones we have in, this, in, in our Bibles here are the ones that were Scripture. More than 7,000 words. And in his day, the price of a scribe and writing materials and distributing it meant that producing a letter of that length would cost something like $2,000 in our modern day currency. What's this letter all about? 16 chapters we have, divided up into chapters. And here's the deal. The church at Rome, in a nutshell here, which originally had had strong Jewish leadership. Its founders probably were Roman Jewish pilgrims to 
Jerusalem at Pentecost would probably carry the gospel back to Rome. When Claudius, Emperor Claudius in the 1940s, expelled the Jews from Rome in the 40s, not 1940s, 1840s, that church probably defaulted to Gentile leadership. Following Claudius' death, those Jewish Christians would have returned back to Rome there, and the church would have been different. Jew and Gentile. And you can kind of see this play out as Paul mentions Jew and Gentile and their various things. And then the 9th or 11th shows uh, where the Gentile and the, and the, and Israel and the church are connect here. And then uh, chapter 14 and 15, some of the difficulties of, of uh, not, not learning how to get along, eating meats, etc. here. So, so, he, so, so the Jewish Christians have returned. You have Gentiles in the larger numbers, and you have returning Jews claiming their priority because they were there first. They had a, a more noble heritage, perhaps, in their minds. And there was a contention that's going on there in the church of Rome. And it's concern of Paul the missionaries, the missionary who said that his, his daily labor and his heartbeat and what keeps him up at night is his concern for the churches. Because it weakened this, this, this mission of the Roman church because the energy was being sucked away by the strength. And so Paul, while he's stationed in Corinth, and you can, this is probably around uh, Acts 18 through Acts 8, uh, 20 here, writes this letter to the church at Rome. And the point of this letter, sometimes we miss this because of how this letter is framed from the Protestant Reformation, but the point of this letter, the thrust of this letter is chapter 15. That's the point of all this. To bring them back to their earlier enthusiasm of the gospel for evangelism and missionary activity by destroying their pride, leveling their pride, and leading them forward to a new commitment to Christ and His plan of salvation for the nations. And chapter 15 is critical in understanding Paul's thrust in this letter. Because what he wants to see happen from the book of Romans is this. Here's the story of the gospel. Here's what you all have in common, Jew and Gentile. You were lost without God. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, he's going to give the trajectory of the human heart as it defaults without God. It is an idol factory, defaulting to exchanging truth for a lie and worshiping creatures rather than the creator. And as the Roman uh, Jewish Christians would have heard that and said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, he says in chapter 2, and here's what self-righteousness does, and it's just as much a sin in its own form of and then in chapter 3, he's going to bring it all together and say, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he's going to talk about the one who is just and the justifier, who provides justification, declares people righteous through the blood of the cross. Then in chapter 4, he's going to go to the Jewish patriarch, Abraham, and show how faith is the key to entering into this new covenant. Then in chapter 5, for those who aren't Jewish, he's going to remind them that this goes all the way back to Adam, what's wrong with us. But there was a second Adam, and he's going to exalt Jesus Christ and his grace that so much more upended what Adam did. And then in chapter 6, he's going to describe the new life in Christ that comes out of the belief of Jesus as the new Adam. The spirit-filled life, the putting to death, 
the old man and the living to righteousness. And in chapter 7, he's going to talk about this is what life without the Spirit looks like when you're trying to do it on your own. And then in chapter 8, this is life again in the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit's work is doing. He's bringing everything to a completion. A new creation, eventually. Then in chapters 9 through 11, he reminds the Jew and Gentile of their roots and God's purposes and how the Gentiles and, and Jews God has brought together through grafting together this grafting the Gentiles into this olive tree here. To remind them of, again, the oneness in Christ and then God's future plan for Israel that he's not done with Israel. And then in chapter 12, he says, on the basis of God's mercies, all of this that he's done in chapters 1 through 11, I beg of you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed, matched to, this, to the Roman culture, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because that proves that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect, complete. And then he flushes out what a transformed life looks like. And believe it or not, pretty nuts and bolts. It's about loving one another. It's about properly relating to each other. It's about serving others in humility with the gifts that God gives you. Then in chapter 13 he says, this is how you relate to the government that you're very aware of living in the capital of the Roman Empire. And then he goes back to love again. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And then in chapter 14, he says, this is how you get along with disputable matters. Things that you might disagree about. Things that are not the fundamentals of the faith. This is how you get along. And this is how you act as a servant of Jesus Christ, who, who, who was a servant for you and gave his life. And this is how you receive one another as Christ has received you. So that in chapter 15, with one mouth and one voice, chapter 15, 1 through 13, the Gentiles and the Jews can together with one voice glorify God. Chapter 8, 15, verses uh, 8 through 13. And then upon that he says, and here's the thing, this is why I'm writing all of this here. I'm writing this so that you guys can partner for the sake of the gospel beyond and so I can even get to Spain and not build on another man's foundation. And that's why he's writing Romans. And so in chapter 16, he, um, he lists 29 people, men and women, of various ethnic and social backgrounds and gender who are exemplary and well-known to the Romans to carry out this task here of Rome being a launch pad for the expansion of the gospel and evangelism and edification, making disciples the Great Commission. And as readers there at the end of Romans chapter 16, verse 17 through 20, they're there to avoid fighting and unorthodox people uh, not holding to the to the fundamentals of the faith are be wise and discerning because he says this in chapter 16, verse 25. In the end, what matters is the theology that brings out obedience to the faith among the nations of the glory of God. And so let me read verse chapter 1, verse 5, and let me read then the other bookend, 16, 25 through 27. By whom, Jesus Christ, the one raised from the dead, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. 
go to 16. It's always good to read the first and last chapter of a book to get the flow of it. And uh, chapter 16, verse 25, now you hear again his heartbeat here for this book. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which is kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And so it leads us to these first seven verses in Romans 1. What would prompt a man to put his whole life toward a movement in the Roman Empire, in the capital city, with a goal to get into the capital city of the Roman Empire, that the most powerful forces of his day would resist and one day kill him? Take his head off for it. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we have the answer to that. Like most people who wrote letters in this day, Paul begins by saying who he is and what this letter is intended for. But he expands this formula here, almost like a swelling balloon to the breaking point here. And he gives as more and more information. And his greeting can be summarized from verse 1 there. Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God. And verse 7, to all that, are, that, that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have just said that. But why does he have 2 through 6 in there? Why is 2 through 6 in there? Because he wants to concentrate particularly on the good news. The gospel. The gospel. That word gospel doesn't occur as a word very often in this letter, but it's underneath everything that Paul says. And he's laying out what this gospel actually is. Because this defines who Paul himself is. Paul wouldn't say to you, I'm a Jew. As of his, uh, uh, as his first letter of identity. Paul says, I am set apart by the gospel. That's the first thing. And the gospel creates a map in which you can see the whole world. And where you belong in it. That's what verses 5 and 6 are doing here. The gospel claims this whole world as Jesus, the King. And that includes the Christians and Rome. So Paul says in verse 1, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God. We need to stop at that first phrase there. A servant of Jesus Christ. The word is a bondservant. What is a bondservant? Well, Paul could have introduced himself any way he wanted, right? Could have talked about his achievements, his accomplishments. But the first thing he says he is, is a bondservant. To understand what a bondservant was to the Jewish mind, you need to read Exodus 21. And understand that there were people who owed debts to other people, and so they would give their labors to that person as a bondservant. Like an indentured servant there would be a kind of close comparison, different from the uh, slavery like during the Civil War, etc., of our country. And at, 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 after a certain number of years, the year of Jubilee, all bond servants were free. They could go free. They were not indebted to that master anymore, or if they had paid off their debt before that time. But in Exodus 21, there was an allowance made for someone who really loved 
their master. And what they would do is they would say, I understand that I am free from you, but I'm going to choose to continue serving you all the days of my life. And to, uh, and to show this in a symbolic way, what they would do is he would go to the doorpost and he would put it, the lobe of his ear against the doorpost. You can read about this in Exodus 21. And then the master would take it all and he would stamp through that, uh, through that uh, bond servant's ear and that would be the mark that I have given my life to the service of this master. And so it is with Paul. He's a bond servant. He's a bond servant devoted to this master. This is the very first thing that pops into his head as who he is. He does not have a case of mistaken identity. He knows who he is. Greg Laurie tells the story of a woman who had finished shopping and returned to her car and she found four men inside the car. And so she dropped her shopping bag and she carried it. So she drew a handgun and she screamed, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of the car. And those men didn't wait for a second invitation. They got out and they ran like crazy. And so she's shaking here. And she loads her shopping bag and she got in the car. And no matter how hard she tried it, she couldn't get her key into the ignition. And then it dawned on her that her car was parked four to five spaces away. <laughs> and so she gingerly got out of her car, out of that car, and got into her own car and drove to the police station to turn herself in. <laughs> and the death sergeant, who she was telling the story to, nearly fell off his, his chair laughing, and he pointed the other end of the counter, and there's four men down there at the other end of the counter, reporting a carjacking by an old lady with thick glasses and curly white hair, less than five feet tall and carrying a large handgun. <laughs> no charges were filed. You see, she, she thought it was her car, but it really belonged to someone else. And how easy is it for us, even as believers purchased by the blood of Christ, to think our lives are our own, but they really belong to God. Paul says, a servant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Well, how did that happen? I want you to flip over with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Where Paul says this, recalling how he was called by God. Galatians 1, verse 10. Or do I now persuade men of God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, I assure you, brethren, that the gospel which is preached to me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation, my way of life in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son to me that I might preach him through among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. You remember that story on the road to Damascus here. And God arrests Saul, who's going to arrest Christians. And he puts them in cuffs, so to speak. And he says, your mission is just on way. Your mission is to be a part of my church. And your mission is to go and win more Gentiles to Christ for the sake of my name. 
called to be an apostle. Paul didn't self-appoint himself, self, was not self-appointed not to say, I'm going to be an apostle. God said, you're going to be my ambassador. But notice what marked out his life here. Separated to the gospel of God. That word separated is, is where uh, we can also get the word for Pharisee here. Paul was a Pharisee at one point. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, he calls himself. But now he is marked by a message of good news. I don't know about you, but living in rural Maine and not having a lot of visitors and not a lot of people on our road, one of the exciting things to my kids is when the UPS truck comes. <laughs> what marks the UPS truck? Well, we can hear him coming down our road. We recognize the sound of the vehicle before he gets there. And he's got a big brown truck, box truck, and he's got a brown uniform, right? And he comes and he brings his good stuff most of the time. Paul here says, what marks me out is the gospel of God. I wonder, I thought about this for myself, but think about it for yourself. When you introduce yourself, or when, when you get up in the morning, do you say to yourself, this is what makes me. I've been separated out by the gospel of God. Paul says, my identity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what marks me. Anything else is secondary if that. The gospel of God, the good news of God, marks me out. And this is what marks me out. So you have the man, Paul, in the first couple verse, first verse, verse. And then you have the message here in the next few verses. Look what he says. Here's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul words the gospel in different ways in different places. He words the gospel uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're most familiar with. There, as Jesus died, buried, resurrected, right? For the forgiveness of sins, seen by witnesses. Uh, in his sermons in the synagogue, and then the way that he expresses the good news of Jesus, the one man who is risen from the dead will come back and judge the earth in Acts 17 to the Greeks, he has the message in a different way here. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, this is how he lists the message. Listen to this. The gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The gospel, the message here. Which he had promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That this was not made up, Romans. Jew and Gentile. This wasn't something that, that, that we contrived here and cleverly made fables, as Peter says here. No, this has been rolling on since Adam fell in the garden in Genesis 3.15, God's promise of a Redeemer. And then embedded in God's word in the Old Testament of his promised plan that he made to Abraham. He said, of you, of your seed, I will create one who will, I will have one who will be a blessing to the nations. God was starting a revolution here against the imposter king, the evil one. He had promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures that this is embedded in God's word here. And I want to just say as way of application, that's encouraging to you and me. Because it tells us something. It tells us that God's word is going to still roll on. We have a responsibility to this word, and that's what the whole point of the book of Romans is, to get this message out. 
But is it also encouraging to us that God's still going to get his work done? He's still going to build his church. He promised before through his prophets and holy scriptures. And Paul is just excited that he gets to be a part of it. He gets to participate with God in this. This, this, this promise here. What promise? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, Christ, Messiah our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That word, born of the seed of David, is the word spermatos. Spermatos. A real historical person here. Lineage. Decades. Centuries. A baby born in Bethlehem. Blood. Guts, heart beating, hands and feet, 100% humanity, and the rightful king of Israel in the world. Remember the promise God made to David in 2 Samuel 7? You'll have one who will be the forever king. And so he's drawing in these deep riches of Israel's prophecies and psalms here, implied in verse 2 here. There were so many different ideas around first century Judaism about a king who was going to come and rule over Israel and rescue the nation from foreign oppression, which in Paul's day, that certainly had to be interpreted as Rome, right? And Paul, guided by what he knows of Jesus in the Old Testament and especially the historical facts of his cross and resurrection, he takes one strand in particular of the coming king who would be God's son. This is the good news. It has happened. God has done it. The king has come. And then he says, and declare it to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. That he's not human, just human. He is divine. He is the son of God. He's 100% man, 100% God. And this resurrection from the dead is the proof of this. There was a guy named Poe back a few hundred years ago. He spoke to an English uh, well-known aristocrat named Talleyrand and said that he had invented a religion that improved on Christianity. But he was a little frustrated about the few followers it was seeming to attract. And so Talleyrand said, well, I got the cure for that. All you need to do is die and rise again, and then you'll get the same number of followers here. That's where success was. And the, that's the point here of Jesus. He's declared to be the Son of God, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection of Jesus, by the resurrection from the dead. That word declared is an interesting word. It's where you get the English word horizon. The horizon as you look out uh, uh, on the ocean there, where the sky meets the sea. Or you're on the mountain. The tip of the mountain reaches the, reaches the sky. And they connect here. The, this horizon. He, he, Jesus hor was horizon here. He was horizon to be the Son of God with power. He bridged sky and land here. Dividing sky and earth. And his resurrection either happened or it didn't. And if it did, then everything Jesus says means something. It is authoritative. It's an objective reality. And so it can't be true for one person and false to another. It either was or isn't. Uh, Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell's son, um, shares this experiment he does about that. He says, I put, a, uh, I put a jar of marbles in front of my students and ask, how many marbles are in the jar? And they respond to different guesses. 221, 168, and so on. 
Then I give them the correct number of 188, and I said, which of you is closest to being right? And they all agreed that 168 was the closest guess. But they understood and agreed that the number of marbles was a matter of objective facts and not one determined by personal preference. Then I passed out some Starburst candies to the class and asked, which flavor is right? As you might expect, they all felt this to be a nonsense question because each person had a preference that was right to them. That's correct, I said. The right flavor has to do with person's preferences. It's a matter of subjective opinion or personal preference, not objective fact. And then he said this, are religious claims objective facts, like the number of marbles in a jar, or are they only a matter of personal opinion, like one's candy preference? And most students concluded that religious claims belong in the category of candy preference. He opened the door then for them to discuss the objective claims of Christianity, that Christianity is based on an objective, historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus. And while many people may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus or redefine it, it's not the type of claim that you can say, well, it's true for you, but not true for me. If the tomb was either empty or occupied on that third day, there's no middle ground. And before anyone can grasp this transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, we have to understand that it is an objective fact, and it is declared with power by the Son of God, the Spirit of holiness. That's what our faith rises or falls on, right? Paul says, if this isn't true, then let's just toss everything out of the window. Why even try to restrain ourselves? Do whatever you want. But it is true. He's declared to be the Son of God with power, the King, the rightful heir. And then Paul says in verse 5, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. Grace. Through him we receive grace, Paul says. The undeserved blessing of God that never, ever stops or runs out. In heaven you're still receiving grace. It's only when it is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. Let me say that again. Only when you understand what God has done for you to be mind-blowing, incomprehensible, do you really understand the true nature of grace. He's saying amazing grace. Because John Newton understood it wasn't just grace. It was astounding. So how is this king, Jesus, the Son of God, resurrected, claiming this world as his own? Because he sends out these ambassadors, Paul says, with good news. Apostles. The word apostle here is Paul describing himself as being sent out people here. That's the point he's making. He refers to his work in verse 1 and 5. And he says, this is the, this is the reason I am sent out as an apostle here. For obedience to the faith among all nations, all ethnos, for his name, for his glory. So what Paul is saying is this. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like salvation. Obedience to the faith. What Paul is saying is, this is the whole point of the Great Commission. When we make disciples, as we are going to all the nations, and we're 
And we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Jesus said what? Teach them to obey everything I command you. So what Paul is putting out here is this. This is the goal of all missions. This is the goal of all evangelism. This is the goal then of the edification of building up and discipling of that believer. The obedience of faith. A believing faith. An obedient faith. People who look like the Son. That's the point of it. People who are learning Christ. Learning to obey Jesus here. And Paul says, this is the point. This is why I'm giving my life to this gospel. This is what it produces. It doesn't produce something anemic, does it? It produces a changed life. It produces a new creation. A transformed life. And Paul says, I'm separated to this. I'm all in on this. And here's the awesome thing. Here's what he says to the Romans. Among whom are you also the call of Jesus Christ? You know what that tells us? It worked. It was happening. It's happening today. And we, by extension, can very uh, much so take this with integrity and say, among whom also you all are called by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here to all that be in Rome, the idea here is it's happening. The gospel is doing its work through faithful messengers. Call out of darkness to light, from orphan to family. To all who are in Rome, Paul says. Remember, he came from Jerusalem on his way to Damascus, right? And now the gospel's in the capital city. It reached the capital of the world system in that day. Doesn't that seem a little weird, though? Put it like that. Um, uh, writing like this to Rome, of all places, the greatest city in the world at that time, the home of the most powerful human in the world at that time, Caesar. Caesar, whose official titles would have been son of the gods, whose birthday was hailed as the good news, who claimed allegiance, loyalty, the greatest empire the world had seen. But Paul knows exactly what he's doing here. He's calling the Romans to this. He's saying Jesus is the true king, the world's rightful Lord, and it is vital that the Christians in Rome knew this and live according to it. And so what, what Paul says about Jesus in this passage here, particularly verses 3 and 4, really almost are throwing shade here on Caesar. He's taking a claim here that Jesus is the true Son of God. He comes from a royal house far older than anything Rome can claim, that of David and beyond. His resurrection, Paul sees, not as just some bizarre thing here, but as the beginning of the resurrection of the dead is a sign of the power that trumps anything of tyranny and bullies because it has declared victory over death. The final weapon of the evil one, he's broken. He's broken. Friends, it's us. We're in there. Call. Beloved of God. Beloved of God. Get a whole message on that, right? We saw that last week with adoption. Beloved of God. Never get over it. Called to be saints. Notice he doesn't say this. You're called because 
for saints. He doesn't say that. He says, we're saints because we're called. Not something I had to earn. God chooses to see every one of us here as saints. We came from a Roman Catholic background. We knew saints were a special group of people that have certain qualifications to be saved. Paul says we're all saints. We've got Saint Mike over there, and Saint Eddie, and Saint Dwayne, and Saint Doris, and Saint Paula. We're saints, holy ones in God's eyes through this gospel. Victorious church, bond servants. And then he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul can say happened to him and separated him out has created a church in Rome. It's created a church in South Hope and around the world because what has happened through the gospel is dramatic. It is exciting. God's good news has caught us up, has transformed our lives and our hopes like nothing else. And the good news that Paul announces here is good news about something that has already happened. Events through which now we can see the world in a totally different place. It's about what God has done in Jesus the Messiah, Israel's true king, the world's true Lord. But they don't realize it yet. And so that means that verse 6 and 7, dressed to people in, in an ancient city in Rome, opens up to include us as well here. We're called in verse 5 to believing obedience. The gospel isn't like an advertisement for a product that we might or might not want to buy, depending on what we felt at the time. The gospel is a call to allegiance to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true King. Paul told those Greeks in Athens, God has commanded every man everywhere to repent, to turn to Him. It's more like a command from an authority that we would be fools to resist. Repent and believe the gospel. Caesar had messengers that would go around the world and tell people that Caesar was Lord. But he didn't have messengers who would go around the world saying, Caesar is Lord, so if you feel you need to have a Roman Empire kind of experience, you might want to submit to him. Well, Caesar did. And Paul's gospel is putting the one true Son of God out there, someone very different to Caesar, a very different kind of power, but the world's true king. And he's going to take a whole letter and launch us to discover what this means, what God has done, how we have turned as rebels from God, how what God has done to reconcile us to himself, and what that means for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul's call here is through the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, surrender to the rule of God's grace. Go to Jesus and see the exchange of your sin the righteousness of God. I wonder here, as you think about these verses here, if that starts to put purpose and meaning to your life. How do you see yourself? How does God see you? What's God been doing to get you to this point? It's a big deal, isn't it? There's some discussion questions on a little yellow sheet here. Last week we had folks from Union and Washington over and uh, we had a great time together and went through some of the questions here on adoption. These are questions here in the back table um, when you came in here on um, uh, Romans 1, 1 through 7. And really a, really a, a deep thinking um, uh, pre- uh, exercise here to think about um, 
our identity in God, the characteristics of God, and God's calling us to think about where do I fit in that? I encourage you to have some folks over and discuss these things and uh, let the Word of God continue to marinate in your heart here. I think of good news. I think of yesterday, <clears throat> uh, the Burgesses invited us over to a little fall get together, and, and uh, Clinton Body were there as well. And uh, Colton came over to me when I was um, on the playground and said um, that um, he was super excited. His eyes were just bugging out. And he just couldn't hold it back. And he said, he said, uh, my mommy's going to have a baby in her tummy. Mm-hmm. And I chuckled and laughed. And I said, hey, Bonnie, uh, Colton said that you're going to have a baby in your belly here. And he just all excited about it and stuff. And she, she was laughing and, and stuff. And I, and I told Clint, <coughs> you know how kids are. Um, and then Clint called me this morning and said, um, hey, uh, so... That's true. <laughs> and, uh, it's early on, but the words already got out to Colton, so we want to make sure that it is dispersed properly here. We're not advertising it big uh, here, but uh, um, there is a little boy who was changed by good news, right? What an illustration. So excited, just thrilled to pieces, right? And he couldn't keep it to himself. He had to tell me about the good news. What an illustration, right? What an illustration. The good news of the gospel of God's grace. We're going to jump into chapter eight verses, uh, chapter one, verses eight through seventeen here. Um, 